cybersecurity is on everyone's mind these days with the release of the news from WikiLeaks about the CIA hacking. Today on A Step Ahead, we spend time talking to an expert who's worked in the private sector, but also with the Department of Homeland Security post 9-11. He understands the issues and the implications for Silicon Valley. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to a Step Ahead podcast. I'm Mike Montgomery, the executive director of Cal Innovates. And today I am joined by cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig, who is the founder of Red Branch Consulting and a contributor at the Lawfare blog. And Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So let's kick this off with some non-controversial issues like, for instance, the travel ban. Silicon Valley is probably safe to say about 99.9% against the travel ban. What are your thoughts on the ban and its effect on innovation? Well, answering the second part of that first as to its effects on innovation, um, I think the ban is less likely to be significant than something else that happened in the last week or so, which was the end of premium processing of H-1B visas. Uh, H-1B visas are the visas that are extended to experts, things like uh, computer engineers from India, for example. And that is the source of much of the talent, not all of it, but a lot of the talent that resides in Silicon Valley. And expedited processing that would bring somebody in in 15 days instead of four months or six months, that's gone away now as part of revamping the vetting process. And that's going to put a significant crimp in the development cycles in the valley because they just won't have the horses to do it. As to the actual ban itself, the one that's targeted at six Arab countries now, is that's not going to have a real effect on innovation. I'm sure there were a few engineers from those countries who can't get here now, but the major effect there is going to be on collateral effects on American business abroad and American image abroad. It's much harder to sell your product when people don't like America, and it's people like America a lot less when we're being mean to the rest of the world. So right. there you go. <laughs> and Paul Rosenzweig, who's joining us today, is you have standing on this because you worked at the Department of Homeland Security post 9-11. You understand the politics and the countries that we're talking about in great depth, right? So when you look at this travel ban versus what America has been since its founding, which has been a place of openness and inclusion, and you're looking at it through a Silicon Valley perspective, which is that different insights and abilities to take risk have driven the innovation cycle, that message that's being sent out to the rest of the world is not very positive. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, as a Homeland Security guy, I'm all for valuable security. But this is painting with a broad brush. My idea of security is individuated concern and suspicion, developing uh, information about particular people so that we know that Mike has traveled to the Fatah and spent six months there. We don't know what he did, but we can assume he took training and now he's back here and his Facebook posts are all jihad this and jihad that. And so that's a good reason to be worried about Mike. This is all hypothetical, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. NSA, if you're listening, this is all hypothetical. Right. So that's the way to do security. The way to not do security is to pick essentially six countries and paint with a broad brush and tar everybody who wants to come here from there as if they were terrorists, especially 
when the six countries we picked are not the ones that the gravest terrorist threats originate from. I mean, notable by their absence from the list are Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, where 11 of the 19 9-11 terrorists came from. We uh, have not had a significant influx of terrorists from Yemen. In fact, the Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence Analysis Unit put out a report that was disavowed by the Trump administration in which it said, basically, there is no correlation between these geographic regions and terrorist threats. So what's driving the creation of these lists? Who's on it? Who's off? What's the thought process there? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to say, obviously. If I knew President Trump's thought processes precisely, I'd be making a lot more money than I am right now. There are small countries that we can essentially bully. We didn't pick on Saudi Arabia because we need their oil. We didn't pick on Pakistan because we need their help in fighting al-Qaeda and other insurgents in the Fatah and in Afghanistan. So what we did do is we picked on uh, either people we really don't like at all, like Iran, or people who can't respond very sensibly, like Yemen, right? That's yeah. my guess. Okay. That probably leaves out the idea of homegrown terrorists as well, correct? Oh, yeah. Right. Leave, it, leave aside the fact that 80% of the attacks that we've seen lately uh, in the U.S. are people who are here legally or have come, been here for years or were born here and self-radicalized or internet radicalized. Yeah. And all of this does have an effect on American society. I know that I think the general feeling in California is that focus and productivity has probably been a little bit down since inauguration. Personal safety fears are up and that has an economic effect on the country as well. I think that's right. The psychological effect, I'm sure, in places that didn't vote for Trump, people are kind of like me, confused and depressed. On the other hand, we, we do have to recognize that 60 million of our fellow citizens voted for the man, 61 million. You know, that's a pretty big number of people who are happy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that reflects their concerns, many of which are tied to this immigration ban, not in any real sense of homeland security threat, but in a more broad-based sense of kind of loss of identity, loss of jobs, that sort of thing. Uh, again, I can't speak for them, but you know, their concerns are not any less real simply because you and I can't relate to them as well as, as we might. Got it. Let's pivot here to talking about the news that broke earlier this week from WikiLeaks regarding the CIA's programs. Can you tell us, you know, for our listeners on a step ahead, what they should know, what kind of the general synopsis of the issue is? Why is this a big deal? Why did this come out? And what should we know? Well, it's a big deal for two reasons. The narrow technical one is that it demonstrates that the CIA and by inference, lots of other nations are busily engaged in finding vulnerabilities in consumer products to the advantage of governments. I have no doubt that anything that the CIA learned, probably the Russians and the Chinese learned, plus a number of others that they've learned that we haven't found ourselves yet. So the significance there is really that people who are developing hardware and software in the Valley are increasingly going to have to engage in what I call defensive development. That is developing products, software, hardware, applications, whatever, uh, with the expectation that outsiders will place them under assault. So that's a sea change. Product cycles right now are all about rush to market, functionality, minimum functionality sorts of things. Now that may have to change some. The second broader piece of this is simply a reflection of the fact that American interests 
or more perhaps more broadly, Western interests are really under assault right now. WikiLeaks is engaged in a program of trying to tear down the Western governmental system, whether it's because they're anarchists or because they're in the pockets of the Russians, I'll leave for others to decide. But we're not responding very well. We have not found a way of keeping secrets. We have not found a way of publicly justifying what governments do. Maybe some of your listeners think that it's unjustifiable and they're rooting WikiLeaks on. But for me, at least, I think that eroding that kind of governmental trust is going to be bad across the board for all of us. So the idea of information sharing has been one that's been bandied about. And it seems that the government is in favor of tech companies sharing information. Does it appear to you that this WikiLeaks leak will, you talk about eroding trust, will it erode trust between private entities and government agencies? I think that's inevitable. The WikiLeaks leak, the fact that President Trump has no real friends in the valley, except for Peter Thiel. I don't know if you saw today, but he named his new cybersecurity advisor. National cybersecurity advisor is a man who used to be head of the tailored access office at the NSA. So a guy whose main job was breaking in to systems is now the head of cybersecurity. That's not going to play very well in the Valley. At least I wouldn't think it would. So I think we're in for a difficult patch of time where there's going to be increasingly greater tension between tech developers in California and Washington policymakers. You don't like the phrase cyber war. You have a different phrase for it, right? What do you call it? I prefer conflict, cyber conflict, cyber, cyber conflict. contest. And the reason is simply that if it's war, you know, that means that it's also legal to add bombs and tanks and send them in as well. And I sort of tend to think that we should limit that description to real instances where people are getting shot at. If a bunch of baby electrons are dying, that's not quite the same thing. I got it. So a virus is not akin to uh, a drone blast, per se. Not unless the virus blows up the generator at the dam by causing it to overheat or something like that. Okay. And that's possible, right? Yeah. Is cyber conflict the next attack plane? And if so, what does that look like for the innovation community? Oh, I, I think that's really what we're experiencing. The CIA that we were just discussing the information operations that are being run by Russia in an effort to influence the American election, now the French and the German elect and the Czech elections as well. Those are all part and parcel of what I call conflict. And I don't want to minimize them. I mean, they're extremely serious and significant incidents. And you might even think that they're more important because you know eroding trust in democracy is a lot worse than blowing up a dam in a lot of ways. And that's the plane at which conflict is happening now. It's much more shadowy. It's much more difficult to attribute things. It's got a lot of deniability. I mean, one of my favorite things out of the CIA hack, not really favorite in the sense that I like it, is that Sean Hannity is now saying that he thinks that this proves that the CIA are the ones who hacked the Democratic National Committee and tried to frame the Russians. Hmm. Which is possible? Let's start with it would be vastly illegal because the CIA is not chartered to examine the conduct of any American, much less political opponent, politician. It's highly improbable since, of course, it means that the Obama CIA was trying to hack Hillary Clinton, Obama's hand-chosen successor. And then, of course, it's nonsensical because they then released it to ensure the election of Donald Trump, who they apparently hate now. So they were working to elect Donald Trump. So it makes no sense at all 
But there's enough uncertainty in this domain that some conspiracy theorists on the far right are going to give this credence. This sounds almost silly to even ask you this question, but can there be ethics for nations around hacking each other? There might be the development. We call them norms rather than ethics, right? Norms of behavior that governments would abide by. We try and develop them, and I could imagine a few of them maybe taking hold, for example, not destroying the domain name system so that all lookups couldn't work. That would be kind of like critical infrastructure for the world that governments might get around to declaring off limits. The major problem with this is not the inability to identify norms with other governments because at bottom, the Chinese and the Russians are rational. They're not into blowing up the world. The problem is, is that Cyber is a democratizing instrument of power so that the norms would also have to be ones that you would be confident that all the small actors, the non-state actors, like the WikiLeaks and the Anonymouses and the LulzSex and the Al-Qaeda's and the Earth Liberation Fronts would also honor. And fundamentally, many of those non-state actors are not rational in the same sense that the nation states are rational. And they might just decide that destroying the global financial system would be great because we could go back to the barter economy when the means of production were in the hands of the working man. Isn't that what Mr. Robot tried to do? Yeah, exactly. You could sort of imagine somebody like that. Imagine a real Mr. Robot with a lot of capability and ask yourself, would he ever abide by norms, even if the U.S., China, Russia, Germany, Israel, France, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa agreed to them. And the answer yeah, that, is, well, that seems like no. this, that, that's right. why it's it kind of almost sounds like a silly question because why would you agree to ground rules if this is cyber? If you if you even escalate it just for a second, escalate it to warfare. Why should there be rules? But that well, makes it difficult. It makes it very very difficult. You're listening to a Step Ahead podcast. Uh, Mike Montgomery here with uh, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, Paul Rosenzweig, who is one of the leading cybersecurity experts in the entire world. We're lucky to have you on today, Paul. We really are. We're talking about a guy who is with the Department of Homeland Security, has seen and heard and experienced things that the rest of us will hopefully never have to see or experience. But your role has been to keep people safe, keep the country safe, keep us safe and secure. So there's this phrase that keeps coming up called the vulnerabilities equities process, the VEP. What is that and why should Silicon Valley know what that means? Well, that's a great question. Silicon Valley knows what vulnerabilities are, right? They're zero-day vulnerabilities in new operating systems or new attack vectors through new applications, all that sort of thing. Sometimes those vulnerabilities are discovered not by malicious actors in Russia, but by the United States government. And the question that the vulnerabilities equities process asks is, should the U.S. government hoard those vulnerabilities and use them for its own purposes in foreign intelligence? Or should it disclose those vulnerabilities to the manufacturers, the tech industry in the Valley, so that the Valley can patch those holes? Almost all of the CIA's vulnerability attacks that we just learned about are ones that might have been disclosed back to the original hardware or software manufacturer in the first instance. And if they had done that, then the manufacturer might have patched that, in which case the CIA would not have been able to use them 
to spy on the Russians, for example. And so the equities process is kind of weighing that in the balance, deciding which ones to disclose back to the manufacturers, which ones to save for a rainy day. According to the Obama White House, about 90% of what we discover, we disclose back to the valley. Of course, the flip of that means that there's 10% we keep. That 10% is a pretty heavy thumb on the scale, though. Well, it depends on your viewpoint on how good the government is at measuring that, those equities, whether or not there's greater utility in them. A famous example is the FBI famously wanted into Apple's iPhone about a year and a half ago. Apple said no. So the FBI bought a vulnerability from somebody, the press says it was an Israeli hacker, and used it to break into the phone. At which point Apple said, could you tell us about that so we can fix it and close it up? And the FBI politely said, well, go pound sand. Actually, they didn't quite say that, but they said, you know, you wouldn't help us, dudes. Yeah, we're not helping you. Now, that vulnerability will age out because it was in the iPhone 4 and 5, and we're up to the 6 now. So it clearly is not going to be a long-term value to the FBI. But that was kind of the equity process that the FBI went through. And one of the pieces of the equity process was, you're not helping us. Why would we help you? Which seems a little childish, but also seems understandable. I guess so. And when you think about the vulnerabilities that could be patched by U.S. companies, in some instances, these vulnerabilities are threatening to the U.S. economy and to U.S. productivity. And so it seems in some instances that the CIA got the espionage part of this right, but perhaps they got a lot of the rest of it wrong. Do you agree with that or not? I think that's quite plausible. I certainly know that that was true with a lot of the vulnerabilities that Snowden was famous for releasing. I mean, if I were the Valley and I had one ask about the vulnerabilities equities process, it would be to make sure that somebody with their interest in mind is at the table pitching. Now, they want in themselves, but they're never going to get in because it's a government thing. But it should be Department of Commerce, NTIA, Office of Science and Technology Policy. There's a whole bunch of people who are on the technology innovation development side who need to be heard in this process, whose voices need to be part of the discussion. Are you somebody who can help these companies be heard? Yes. Send them to me. Red Branch Consulting. (laughs) Uh, That's what I try and do for a living. One of my great frustrations, frankly, with the Valley, especially with the smaller entrepreneurial innovators, is that they don't understand enough about Washington and they don't think it matters to them. And I get the focus, right? You know, they're about getting out version one of the greatest next thing. But the lack of insight into Washington and the lack of concern for it is unfortunate. I have a phrase. I will use it. You know what an alpha predator is? Sure. Alpha predator, top of the food chain, the shark. Washington is the alpha predator in the policy world, right? And small entrepreneurs in the Valley spend most of their time believing that Washington is irrelevant to them. And most of the time they're right until they're wrong, until Washington cuts off their computer engineers or mandates backdoors and encryption or puts together a vulnerability equity process that does not include the equities of small and medium-sized developers who who are trying to break into the market and dearly would love to know about mistakes in their code so that they can make better products, that's what the Valley is missing, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And some people get that. The problem is it's almost like life insurance, right? Exactly. Yeah, nobody wants it. Or even health insurance. If you're 25, you don't go with it because you figure I'm invulnerable. Yeah. And then you die. 
Exactly. And so I think that's a really good point that you make. You got to have a seat at the table. And some of the challenge is a lot of these smaller companies, the startups will ride the coattails of the larger companies because they can't afford it or they don't have the knowledge base to work with an advocacy group like Cal Innovates or an advisory group like Red Branch Consulting. I think we do play a valuable role in bringing those voices to the table. I think that's essential. And frankly, I get the idea of slipstreaming in the wake of the big boys, but the small innovator and the big boys are not always on the same page. They may sometimes, but you know, encryption is a great example. The big boys don't want encryption, but if they have to do it, they'll just change the code and they can afford to. If you're a small guy who's been building encryption into the middle of your product and all of a sudden you get a mandate to put in a back door, that's 12 months of runway that you just lost. Yeah, um, which life and death. Yeah, and, and so you're dead. For Microsoft, it's a pain in the ass. And for Apple, it's a product hit. For your average next startup, it's the end of life. So what can happen here? Can there be a lawful hacking regime with rules put in place by Congress? Well, I think there has to be. Whether there should be or not, I don't know. But there has to be because if not, there's only going to be unlawful hacking. And we need to find some way of building a system where people who want to be in a position to defend themselves can do so in a way that is lawful without becoming the wrong side of the law right away. That's an essential part of the puzzle. It might not be necessary if we could find a way to clamp down on hacking altogether, but that's just not going to happen, right? Right. Paul, there's a theory out there that it's not just the CIA that's doing work like this, but it's also the NSA and the Department of Justice. And if that is the case, why would the United States have three different agencies spending time and resources doing the same thing three times over? Well, that's a great question, but I think that the answer is we believe in separation of functionality as a way of protecting liberty. The FBI operates domestically, the NSA and CIA operate overseas, and we hope that we can constrain them to just operating overseas so that we never unleash them. The FBI is focused exclusively on criminal activity, and it's subject to the restrictions of judges with warrants and probable cause requirements. The NSA and CIA, they don't have rules, right? There's no American law that makes it a crime to hack a Russian Samsung TV. In fact, that's what we want them to do, right? We have more than $50 billion in budget to get them to be able to do that. Traditionally, the NSA has been focused on signals intelligence. So they were communications and the CIA has been focused on personal individual human intelligence. But now with the development of bring your own device, small devices, those two are sort of converging. So the CIA and the NSA are starting to have digital overlap, and that needs to be worked out. But their separation is historically a valid one as well. Okay. So what's the optimal path forward on cyber from the perspective of the innovation economy? Well, I mean, I think the first step is be informed, right? Don't live in your little bubble. I'm about to start a monthly newsletter. If you want in, send me, me an email. Send it. Yeah, okay. Where can, we I send that? Where can we find you right now? Let's talk about that. Okay, it's uh, redbranchconsulting.com. All one word, redbranchconsulting.com. And it's paul.rosenzweig, R-O-S-E-N-Z-W-E-I-G, at Red Branch Consulting. Send me an email. Sign up. 
I'm shooting for monthly now, just bringing Washington to the Valley. Right now it's free. Eventually, maybe someday I'll charge for it, but you know, we'll see about that. And it's something I just started a, a little while ago because of, for this very reason, that innovative people don't know what's happening. Right. So, people people are uh, want they that, want a path forward. They want to know that there is a tactical path forward for them. So what does that what does yeah, that generally think, look like? If you could pull out your paintbrush and kind of paint that with words here right now, how would you do that? Well, after awareness comes action. My action items I think would be engagement with Congress and the executive branch about the issues that are closest to them. If you are interested in encryption, because a change in encryption law will destroy your company. What we talk about in the newsletter is there's comment period. Put your word in. Say, this is what, talk to your congressman. Write an op-ed for a local newspaper. Write an op-ed for one of the trade magazines that does this. Write an op-ed for the Cal Innovates newsletter. There you go. Right? Or, or something like that. All of those things are eminently plausible and, and ways of going forward. But the most important thing, besides awareness and engagement, is kind of an organization. Right now, the entrepreneur community is diffuse. They don't do this. They need to, frankly, join Cal Innovate or something like that. Sorry, had to do the plug. But Thank you. But, but it's, it's true. If you're a small entrepreneur, you don't have the wherewithal to do all this yourself, but you need somebody who's looking at what's happening in Sacramento and what's happening in Washington to give you an alert if there's something that really needs your attention. Tracks legislation for you warns you that a regulation is coming that's going to destroy your business model. This is how it is. The last step, of course, is eventually when you get big enough to afford it, put your money where your mouth is, right? And start buying ads, making political contributions, that sort of thing. Right. Eventually, that's where you have to go. Right. You and I have had a few conversations about agile methods in 18F. I think this is one of your favorite things to talk about lately. Can you tell us about agile methods in 18F and why that matters to the innovation community? Sure. This is exactly one of the things that people on the West Coast ought to be aware of is happening on the East Coast. Most of your listeners probably know what agile methods are. They're a quick, agile method of software and hardware development that trots out new functionalities one at a time. So we go from version 1.1.1 to 1.1.2. If 1.1.2 doesn't work, we back up, and then we go to 1.1.3, and it doesn't have 1.2. So it's modular, it's supple, it changes quickly, it's short on documentation, long on deploying functionality quickly, and it's absolutely not how Washington works. <laughs> Washington works by something we call the waterfall method where they sit up at the top and they spend two years thinking about their requirements. Then they do two more years of design, two more years of development, two more years of implementation and testing. And then eight years later, they trot out an entire program that can do everything, but is so out of date that nothing is left on it. Instead of saving the feedback and comment pain for later, they make sure that that's in there too, but which time the entire program is dead. 18F, was an innovation of the Obama administration to bring agile methods to software development in the federal government. They were started in the wake of the healthcare.gov website disaster. President Obama sent up a flare to his friends in Silicon Valley and said, send me some people with chops here who know what they're doing and bring them to Washington to help me fix that. They fixed that and they did some really good work on the Veterans Administration's websites and systems, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is in the process of digitizing all of its records that are still paper files from the 1800s. That's a huge project. 
and it needs a lot of agility in its development. They're working on that. They did some work for FEMA in quicker responses to emergency managers. Great stuff. But along the way, what they did was they used their West Coast methodology. They used off-the-shelf technology. They stinted on documentation, frankly. And so the General Services Administration, which is the main provider of services through the government, came in and the Inspector General just wrote a scathing report in which it said, you're using unauthorized software on federal systems. And now that really sounds bad, doesn't it? I mean, I wouldn't want anybody to use unauthorized software on a federal system because that might be insecure, except that it's not. What they meant was that they were using common off-the-shelf technology like Hootsuite and Pingdom, right? Which, you know, uh, half the websites in the world use to monitor their performance. And that was what they were critiqued for. Interesting. Well, let me ask you a quick question. The the CIA probably has a way in on many of those programs anyway, and other nation states do as well, right? Well, that's true. But I don't think there's any evidence that Pingdom is less secure than an in-house developed web program. It's likely more secure, right? Right, because it's got 700,000 users in 22 countries, including Facebook and Spotify. I happened to look that up the other day. And if there was a problem, these guys would have found it. Somebody would have reported it last year and they'd have fixed it, right? Yep. That's how the real world of development works in California and, frankly, in Silicon Valley, in the Silicon Corridor in, in Boston and, and in Virginia. It's not how the U.S. government works. The U.S. government is a no-defect, audit-everything system that destroys you if you don't check every box. But check the box is not security. What is security is what works. So what's the future of 18F? In doubt right now, under assault by the GSA Inspector General, a couple of really bad press pieces in the DC press, which were designed to take them down. More sophisticated people like me are trying to boost them up. I mean, if this is a precise instance in which people from Silicon Valley who understand this ought to be calling back to anybody they know in Washington and say, look, get real. This is good stuff. Don't let the federal bureaucracy kill innovation with its rigid checklist methodologies. Otherwise, these federal IT systems are never going to be up to speed. They're always going to be two generations behind and incapable of supporting innovative technology. This is precisely one of those things that people need to talk about. You're right. The idea of modernization is very important. Being antiquated is bad for the citizenry. It's probably bad for security and it's not very efficient. So I think from the sounds of it, we can get behind the 18F movement. And it sounds like it's something that should continue. I think so. I mean, I have no dog in this fight. I don't know anybody at 18F. I got a lot of nice notes from people recently because I wrote something about it. But it's easy to see that if you understand how the Valley works, that this is not how Washington works, but it should be. Yeah, it should be. It seems like there's a lot of debate about that right now on a number of issues across the country. I think that the products that are being developed and the platforms that are being developed in Silicon Valley affect the country and the world in mostly in very positive ways. The thought process is there. And I think that the administration needs to consider the fact that a lot of these products and platforms and services are being developed by immigrants. To come full circle here, Paul, 
it seems a little bit short-sighted to slam the door when we, at least out here in California, believe that Silicon Valley is one of the strongest aspects of the U.S. economy. And we need to do everything we can to help move that forward, whether that's expedited processing of H-1Bs or just simply more H-1Bs rather than less or no expediting. We need to supercharge the innovation economy. We need to supercharge the workforce. We probably need to work on educating the workforce better at a younger age so that we can fill more of those jobs. But we should be inclusive. We should be welcoming. And we need to do everything we can at this point in time to support innovation. And I think it all really ties together quite nicely with a bow there is interplay between private sector and government. We get that. But when there are things like what the CIA has done that could affect companies and if could affect startups, one vulnerability could ruin a startup. There's no retribution. There's nothing. You, you can't go sue the CIA for not disclosing or putting this before the VEP. So we've got a long ways to go, I think. I agree completely. It really strikes me that at a very fundamental level, there's a lack of understanding of how innovation happens in Washington. And that's something that has to change or it will never get it right. Yeah. Well, those are words of wisdom from Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting. You can also find them on the Lawfare blog. You write quite often, I think, it looks mm -hmm. like uh, maybe even weekly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least yeah, whenever something happens, blogging is like that. Yep. And something seems to be right. happening pretty often these days. So, Paul, thanks for joining us on A Step Ahead. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that we can expect you back when other things happen in the cyber and the security world. And we can work them out and talk them through and help our listeners understand what's going on. I would love to come back anytime you invite me. Thanks Good. for having me on. Absolutely. So for our listeners, look up Red Branch Consulting and Paul Rosenzweig. He is a cybersecurity expert and maybe he can be yours. Thanks for listening, everyone.